0: So um, think about this. In the human, if you were an intelligent designer and an engineer as a god, wouldn't right. you just create the laryngeal nerve to go from the brain stem to the larynx? Of course you would. And in the case of a giraffe, you've got yeah. the head of the giraffe, you've got the brain of the giraffe, and then you've got the, the larynx just below here. Right. The problem is with humans is our, our laryngeal nerve starts in our head, g- comes down to our upper chest cavity, turns, does a U-turn, comes back up into our larynx. For a, a giraffe, that's about a 20-foot detour. Goes down about 10 feet. Holy shit. Up around the chest cavity and then hits the actual larynx. And that's perfect description for uh, an imperfect way of evolving over the course of time. So as creatures moved out of water and into land – there was something in evolution that said, okay, do I, do I just, as the neck grows, do I have to repivot everything, or do I actually have, because it has to do with gills and, and, and how we breathe in water, would it be easier to evolve just to actually extend it out and have it come back up and around? And you can watch these people take open a cadaver of a, of, a, of, a, of a giraffe, and you can see where this thing goes. There's absolutely preponderance of the evidence. The burden of proof is on intelligent design to say, why didn't God just go poof? And it's because God wasn't involved in the in, in the recurrent laryngeal nerve, if you ask me. He let the, He let nature do its own thing.
1: Okay, let me dive into a really quick question with you because it's hitting my brain. Do you think, like, let's assume this: what we see is a construct. Good point. Okay. Okay. And it's not reality. Like it's it's just what we are seeing as the watcher. Anything that happens in this view is just a digital imprint.
0: Yep, it's a digital image of your of your of your personal. Right. It's not
1: a real experience, but because you're seeing it, you're believing it. And what if God just? What if the Creator just let it happen through evolution? But the problem that I always get into is our own human story in the Bible starts with Adam and Eve and the, uh, and the concept that they are singular. So there is a moment of time where human beings start. I don't know what that, how that happens, but it's this period before that, that is what if God just let the computer program run and every single possible potential variation is a mutation that starts with God, but happens through evolution.
0: Isn't that the definition of free will? Isn't that
1: exactly Yeah. Well, and these bodies are exactly what was our imagination created to experience the world that is this visual.
0: I think it's a pretty, uh, pretty astute and very compelling argument. You know, it sounds like it could be a, a, that's a good facet of what we have
1: going on. I think that's why we created this podcast. <laughs> to understand these questions because I'm just. I'm just pondering these things. I'm just not like half the, half the stuff that I say on this podcast is me speaking out loud what my mind is thinking in that moment. Um, and I like that about you because that's, I think our best quality is that you and I dive into interesting subjects that are um, important to what what it means to be human. It's not just these are interesting topics, it's about what it means to be human. So um, I think that's a really good way of starting. Uh, hey everybody, this is Jonathan. I'm here with Rich. Say hi, Rich.
0: Hey everybody, happy Sunday. We're we're recording on Sunday morning instead of on Friday afternoon. But uh, w- wishing the best out there.
1: Yeah. And uh, today I get to dive into the deep end of the water um, and download my brain into this podcast. Um, I th- actually spent some time after watching Rich. I know I learned from him um so i i jotted down some notes in terms of just communicating what was important in my story so the listeners can kind of hear get to know me a little bit better um and uh but i'm going to hand it off to rich cuz rich today you're the lead host so uh how do you want to start
0: well you know i'm I, I, there's so many questions I want to ask you, Jonathan, because there's so okay. many ways uh, that you look at life and you react to life uh-huh. um, or adapt to life um, yeah. over your journey. And um, I've got a lot of things to ask, but we've only got a certain amount of time, yeah. but I thought the best way to begin was where you asked me um, at the beginning of the podcast last week, which was where does Jonathan begin? You asked me, where does Rich begin and or yeah. where did Rich begin? And I would love to ask you where does Jonathan begin? Does that sound so, fair? It, yeah, in height, uh, gosh, that's- Or a maybe question. the question is, what the hell's going on in your life? What What, what, what is your, maybe maybe the better question would be, um, what, how would you like to begin this, you know, how would you like to begin your story? How about that? How would you like to talk about- what Well, let's do are, this. I mean, when do when I
1: think it? my AI turned on? When does Jonathan begin? <laughs> that idea of Jonathan, uh, I, I think my earliest, my absolute earliest memory I have is actually in the crib. I I was one and a half. I remember being in the crib at my grandma's house. That's my very first image that I ever got to experience. I remember walking across the street when I was three and a half. Um, I remember the staircase in that house. Wow. Uh, and we lived there until I was four or five, and then we moved to Rosemar. And Rosemar was on the east side of San Jose in this little enclave right at the tip of the base of the hill. And like, it was funny, on the other side of the street was where the uh, low-income neighborhood was.
0: Yeah, east side
1: If you lived on the hillside, you were in the money side. And it was super weird. I just recognized that. I didn't even think about that until just now that I lived on the rich side. And I think one of the questions I want to explore today is I am beginning really to listen to. I grew up in privilege. That is the one thing that has hit me. Here's the reality that first baby, when I looked in the mirror, when I remember when I was five years old, this is the first moment of pain in my life. I was, I've been writing this down in my journal. The first moment of pain I remember is looking into the mirror of the bathroom and there's blood all over my face, streaming down and I'm screaming. And I remember, I didn't know what this was, but I remembered my mom making me feel like I was going to get through it. Good. And it was very much, because one of the things that I'm recognizing now that I understand the state's of how the brain operates. I'm going back and listening to my own life with recognizing that until I was about 11, I didn't have a fucking clue. You're a very naive human being because you don't have a critical brain. And so at that moment, I didn't have a critical brain. And I just experienced trauma. Absolutely.
0: And I remember being
1: Yes, yeah. and I had fallen off my bed and poked myself with a pencil, right in the middle of my forehead. I still have. Are you saying you
0: landed like, like somehow it was? I don't
1: there. know how it happened. I wow. was asleep when I fell, so all I remember is standing on the counter, and I've always wondered that. Like, how did how do you fall off the bed onto <laughs> a pencil? I don't right. know how I did it. So, um, and then I remember the next thought. I had a lot of memories in Rosemar. Uh, really around the backyard. I cut down the family tree. That was a funny one. I was like, I cut, we had this kind of weird shaped backyard and someone had, a previous owner had created a shuffleboard concrete uh, floor in the backyard. And on one end, it was a, was a uh, apple tree that really didn't ever grow very much. And one day I got the wildest idea of, I'm going to cut it down. And I was probably six or seven. And I pulled out my dad's axe. I mean, I'm seven years old with an axe. And I'm
0: George Washington in, in the flesh.
1: Yes. I was like, okay. Oh, yeah. I was. Um, so I remember getting in trouble, but it not being a big deal. And I have one other big memory. It was almost like as I'm going through this journaling process, what I'm doing is I'm processing my pain, the the, the moments that I feel or felt pain um, or like embarrassment or shame. and I'm realizing that I when I go back and do that, I am rewriting those scripts. Mm-hmm. Like I don't have any triggers anymore around them. They're um, they're not embarrassing anymore uh, because I'm realizing like one of one of the things that happened um, is I remember this is a very uh, intrusive story. I hope this isn't too much information. So when I was a kid, I had this ability to put my hands clasped or ha- what weaved together with your hands, fingers weaved together. And I would hold myself around my crotch from the front side and the backside. And I could keep myself from going to the bathroom. Okay, this is a true story, <laughs> true story. I could clench my butt cheeks just enough because I was always in places where I wanted to keep playing and I didn't want to stop and go to the bathroom. So I learned how to stop it. Yeah. Okay. And I remember the first time I did it and I was realizing, oh, sh- oh shit, I am going to shit my pants, but I'm we were in the middle of a game. And I said, and I'd never done it before in front of people, and I remember exactly where I was. And I said, oh, sh- I'm going to shit my pants right now. <laughs> I reached down in the middle of the game, and I grabbed it, and I froze. Completely froze myself because that's how you stop it. I just completely punched my butt cheeks up together and held my hands as hard as I could. And then I opened my eyes and everybody is looking at me like, what the hell are you doing? (laughs) And I remember being so embarrassed. And I realized I thought about that the other night. And I realized now I just laughed about it and it didn't hurt anymore.
0: And the good news is it's better to have pinched those cheeks together and looked a little embarrassed at first than to actually have a load in your pants
1: uh, in the middle yeah. of the game. At five right. years. old, uh, Yeah. It was not, oh. it was all the neighborhood kids. I remember it was all my friends from the neighborhood and I did not want to shit my pants in front of my, so it was, but it was one of those moments where it was like, okay, I remember feeling embarrassment going back to that point you made um, yes. that first moment in the mirror. uh when we're children we don't know how to process pain it just is it is at that moment my mom didn't freak out she uh, and almost like a mirroring into me you're fine you're gonna be okay like she had this very calm spirit mm-hmm. and she she knew how to love on us really really well i think that was the dominating idea throughout my entire childhood is I had a mom that was deeply uh, in touch with her heart. My mom actually, so uh, here's another moment. Here's another moment um, that I just processed. I remember um, my mom had Epstein's anomaly and it's a defect in the heart. Okay. And you either die at birth or at seven or you grow out of it. And it's always a defect. Well, my mom ended up trying to repair that and she died on the operating table and had an out-of-body experience. And during that experience, um, she came home, she came back alive, they brought her back and she was in bed. And I remember, why is mommy hurting? hmm. You know, it was like one of those moments of like, wow, I didn't understand the depth of what was going on until much, much later. Um, so my mom, how old, was were, you, really how old wanted...
0: were you when this was happening?
1: Uh, I was, I think I was six, okay. around six and now, I, that's I think... you a quick question. You yeah, said that
0: you either die at birth or uh, up to seven, or then you grow out of it. So she'd obviously grown out of it. She, had, she you. had, um, and so the question I have is why did she want to go back in? If you made it sound like you grow out of it and then you kind of just, is it, is it always a constant recurring possibility that something bad will happen?
1: Yes. So you grow up with an idea that you could die at any moment because what it is, it's, I think the best way to describe it is, and I could be wrong on this, but I can't totally remember it, a hole in your aorta and somehow magically her, she had a hole in her heart legitimately. And so you, the surgery closes now it's not a big deal. This was 55 years, 50 years ago. Now it's, it's not an issue at all. They fix it at birth and it's no big deal. Um, but her generation didn't have that. And so she, uh, the surgery was her attempt, I think, to solve her, uh, her fear of it. Like, let's take the risk.
0: Never, never have it on the horizon. It's not going to be out there.
1: Right. Yep. And the surgery worked okay. Um, I don't believe it totally repaired it, but they said, we got enough that we feel you'll be, you'll be okay. Okay um and
0: so she had died though so there is she did have an she out died of body for 60 experience. seconds
1: yeah she had an out-of-body experience and saw her body on the operating table saw all the doctors she went outside her um her uh, room and then she came back because they paddled her and the moment she paddled she came back
0: amazing yeah. i literally had a conversation last night with somebody who died And came back
1: yeah you know it's funny it makes
0: the joke heaven didn't want him and neither did hell and
1: (laughs) no but it's it's funny that I she was my mom so I was very aware of my mom had an out-of-body experience she had a near-death experience it wasn't like that idea was foreign to me I grew up with the idea that my mom experienced the supernatural and my mom was a very spiritual person, but not in a religious way. My mom loved people more than anybody I've ever met. And I didn't get that until I was probably 50. Um, and I was trying to think, what was the so the big dominating story or or sort of trauma is my parents divorced. Mm-hmm. My dad was my hero. He worked for IBM. Yeah. Um, my my constant memory that I have with my dad is like, when I think of my dad, the very first memory I always have is when I was five years old, my dad worked at IBM and he would go into work really early. And then he would always try and be home at around five because my mom would make dinner. We were traditional that way. And this was, Classic. The city, right. Yeah. And um, I would run and I would, ju- it was my sister and I were at home and our rooms were equidistant to the front door and we had a carport. So he would walk around the front and walk in the front door and my sister and I would run to see who could get to him first and jump into his arms. Because if we were first, our, my dad always chewed a piece of juicy fruit gum. And whoever got there first and kissed him got to have half the gum.
0: Mm.
1: So it was a competition my sister and I had. So my sister was Jennifer. Uh, today, this day, she's probably one of my closest friends because she's an amazing freaking person. Uh, so I grew up in this really incredible family that uh from the outside from my perspective seemed incredibly safe uh l- very loving my parents never fought in front of us mm. ever okay and then one day my mom uh drives to church and takes us to church my dad never went as so it was usually my sister and my mom and i and one day she drives us to church and then she leaves She'd never done that before. We were nine and 11. And back then- She leaves at live. church or she leaves, when did she leave? Uh, she, it was like 8.30 or nine in the morning. Right. She takes this to church. Yep. She drops us off at our classes and then she leaves. And back then, parents didn't think twice about that kind of thing. It was like environments were incredibly safe and everybody trusted each other. She knew everybody there. And so she leaves and I didn't really think about it until we got in the car afterwards. And my mom, I remember the exact moment where I was, there were brown Hills. I was in the back seat laying down. There were brown Hills in the background. And my mom said, your dad and I are getting a divorce. And that was the moment that traumatized me. My parents' divorce traumatized me. My dad moved 30 minutes away and but my hero, the man who had come in the front door, like we stopped doing that by the time I was nine, but it was, he was my hero and my hero was leaving the family and I, I was nine and that's right before the critical brain. And mm-hmm. I really was not prepared for that event and didn't understand divorce and the irony of it. And this is the irony of, of one of the memories that I processed is, um, a week before that moment happened, do you remember a PBS show called Zoom? It was like a children's workshop show where average teen kids between like nine, my age, and around 16 would come on and create skits and shows. And so they have these incredible ideas that they would do. And one of the ideas was let's talk to kids whose parents have divorced. Okay. Okay. This is a week before my mom says this to me that my, your dad and I are getting divorced. And she got, and she says, um, the, the, so I'm watching this show and the kids are talking about, you know, like my mom left and my dad left and whatever. And I remember saying to myself, I am not going to have to experience this mm-hmm. Isn't that a weird moment? Like this is a week before, and then the next week, my mom says we're getting divorced. That traumatized me, and that became my primary wound. That just sucked the life out of me. Like it, that's the best way I would describe it. When I was from basically zero to nine, I lived as an animated child. I really did. It was true. I was an animated child. I I loved myself. I was in a great family, and then all of a sudden, it was like someone kicked me in the balls, and all the wind got completely sucked out of me for probably 20 years, and I, so I spent the vast majority of my high school career kind of afraid of life, like, life was mean. Life was hard. And I grew up in a, in an amazing family. Um, my mom ended up marrying a man named Clay McCullough and he was probably one of the most incredible men that was perfect for me as a stepfather. Uh, he was, he was hard, but he was loving and he became a Christian in our family at a Billy Graham crusade of all places. Wow. And, um, Yeah, he and he had a true conversion. My mom was a very spiritual person, so I know she probably was a big conduit for his change. But he had one of those moments where it was like, my life changes, like I'm going to start like they talked about, hey, we're living together. We should get married because they were learning this at church together. And he really took it to heart. And he started participating in the church. And it wasn't about the church thing. So I grew up in that church environment. I grew up at Las Gatas Christian Church, which was one of the very first mega churches in the United States. Uh, in 1975, we had like 7,500 people attending. Oh my, my youth group was 800 people in high school. Wow. And every year we would go to Hume Lake and have these amazing, I was talking to my uh, to my wife about this. I used to go to camp and every year we would go to Hume Lake and we would go because I was trying to explain to her energy and how energy can affect you emotionally. And we would go to camp and we would have these week long hangout with your best friends. You just met the cutest girl ever. And you go to campfire at the end of the week and everybody is hopped up on on Coca-Cola. And they 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 have the love of their life, their very first love sitting right next to them. And they go God, fucking life is amazing. Yeah. I don't accept Jesus. Like this is how it's. This is how the whole experience was. <laughs> and I will say this: as much as I grew up in a very religious environment, because it was basically one foot out of being a pure Baptist, we were a non-denominational church, but we were basically Baptist. You, the whole goal was be a good kid. And I remember uh, going to the junior high there because. I was actually when I went to my first day of junior high, a, a, a gang actually came up to me. I was a small white kid, like I'm six foot three now, but I was the shortest kid in school almost until eighth grade. And um, I grew late. And uh, and I remember that my first day of junior high, this gang of seven boys that were eighth graders came up and said, um, you owe us money. And I freaked out. I was like, holy shit, I'm in a scary environment. And this is right after my parents had divorced. So I was in the midst of fear. Fear yep. was just taking over my life. Uncertainty,
0: right? Like, oh, oh here's another, t- okay. I, I I used to be in this um, environment of comfort and and, and yeah. no judgment. And all of a sudden now there's this and then now this, okay.
1: And I, I really spent, um, so I went to my parents and said, hey, there's a gang, we got a problem here. And their idea was to take me out of junior high and put me in a Christian school. So that was a seminal moment in my life because I went from this public multicultural junior high, like half of my school was, uh, was from another country or was, um, we had a lot of Asian kids. We had a lot of black kids. We had a lot of Hispanic kids, those were the and then a lot of white kids. So it was probably like 25% of each. So we were the minority to a almost all white Christian junior high. Mm-hmm. And this is when I really recognized I I I did grow up in a tremendous amount of privilege. I did. My stepfather made a lot of money. And he was very successful in construction and then construction litigation. So we grew up with, I mean, I grew up uh sailing. You know, we would go out on San Francisco and Santa Cruz and go sailing all the time, uh, which is an ama- it's probably one of the most gorgeous sports in the world. Uh, it's just one of the most unique, uh, vibrant experiences you can ever have. If you can ever go sailing, it's an amazing thing. So, And that's a privilege to have that. So I grew up and then I grew up in the middle of Silicon Valley. Okay, mm-hmm. I grew up. Uh, I could throw a rock practically and hit the birthplace of Intel. So, and Intel for anybody who grew up in Silicon Valley knows it was sort of Intel and HP and IBM were the three juggernauts and it was peach orchards and, uh, life was pretty middle class, ordinary everybody. I played soccer. I loved all my friends. Um, life was pretty good. Church group was pretty good. We had one of the funnest experiences we ever had in church was we went what are called all night parties. And this was a masterclass in having fun. I don't know if you ever did them, but it no, was. No,
0: um, I didn't, but my kids did. Yeah.
1: Yes. So you go and the first stop is you go to like uh, like a mini golf. Mini golf was always the first one. That's right. Mini golf. And then we would sometimes go to, an, oh, sometimes we would start an amusement park like Great America. And then we would go to mini golf, and then we would go to bowling. And then around 4 o'clock, they kind of slow kids down, and they put them all in the same room with sleeping bags, and they put on a movie. And if you could stay awake during the movie, you were were hot shit. You know, that was the goal. Who could stay up all night? Like, that was the thing to do, you know? It was like we had so much fun. I think the thing that was dominating is as much as I was being destroyed by, by my parents divorce, because I just didn't understand it. It made no sense to me. I was just blind. My parents weren't bad people. Um, is that I grew up with a lot of amazing opportunities. Mm-hmm. Like we going across town, I it was it was kind of ironic. I was living in the middle of we actually moved up to uh, an estate in um, the East Foothills and I was spending most of my life commuting 30 minutes across town to Los Gatos. Cause that's where we did a lot of life. And I realized that commute, I, it was almost a, like, remember where you're coming from. And cause I r- realized God took me out of this life. I think I would have learned a lot from, but I was, it was, I was not emotionally prepared to handle it. I think is kind of my hindsight. And, um, and so when I was, you know, I went to a Christian high school and had amazing friends of which I'm still friends with today. And then I went to Biola, mm-hmm. uh, where I went to junior colleges, like I danced around in junior colleges, but I ended up at Biola. And Biola was a seminal moment, because that's when um, my life really started to, I went to Biola twice, actually. So I went the first time and I tried to do the good kid thing. And I sucked at it because there was just too much destruction inside of me going on. I was, I was fucked up inside and I realized I was trying to live this good moral life so much so that I ended up becoming a resident assistant. So your job is then to enforce those rules. Oh my God. What a mess. mess. Yeah. That threw a grenade into my friend's group. I was like, I was the dickhead now. I was like, why did I do this? And I realized there was just this internal war going on me between who I thought I was and the reality of, I was just, I was messed up inside. I really was. And it was trying to expose itself, but it came out as very destructive. Like when I was in junior high, um, I had spent my camp money on just bullshit stuff. And then I didn't have any when it was time to go to camp. So I stole $20 from my stepdad. And this is an important story because this is probably one of the moments I experienced fear the most as a child at that acute time. So I went to camp, and the um, my parents called me the first day and said, "You, we know you stole the money. How much do you have left?" And I said, "Well, I oh, I I was completely busted, okay." And they called me at camp, like that was hard to do. We were in the middle of Lassen, middle of nowhere. And um, they said, okay, how much do you have in your pocket? I said, I have 1650 because I had bought lunch and candy on the way up. It was free money, man. I was rich. And so I had nothing to spend. So I came up with the stupid idea of what if I steal money from the people in my cabin? I mean, this is one of the worst things I ever did, dude. It was like, it was so stupid, but I was hurting inside. I was trying to get caught. Okay. But once it's time to get caught, I don't want to get caught and I'll do almost anything not to get caught. Okay. So uh, all of a sudden they know there's a problem in the cabin and the counselors call all of us into the room and they proceed to strip us all down and they're searching for who has the money. Empty the pockets. Empty the pockets. Okay. And in the middle of that, they're like, I grabbed the wallet because it's on me and I stuck it underneath the top bunk and the floorboard. Got it. Okay. And the entire time I'm sitting there going, I'm about to get royally screwed. I'm going to get caught and I'm going to be known as the kid who steals from everybody. And I am literally shaking in my boots. And that was the only bed they didn't turn over oh my gosh so they actually were really I got away diligent. with it diligent
0: oh my gosh, I got away with it do you consider that a good thing or a bad thing
1: no dude it was like in hindsight it was a stupid thing it was the worst thing it's probably one of the worst things i've ever intentionally done to harm myself in yeah. my life yeah because think about it if i had gotten caught who loses most i did i was trying to hurt myself yeah and But I was smart enough to get away with it. I got lucky. Like, that was not the moment I was going to get caught. It was like God stepped in. In hindsight, I think God stepped in and saved me by not allowing me to get caught. My parents had already caught me. Mm -hmm. They'd already caught me. I was already busted. And that was the long, slow process that probably, I mean, it probably took me. uh, ah. So can we go, take a quick pause? Yeah. One of the things that we've talked about,
0: and including with Sean Clayton, is this idea of creating your own reality, right? Yes. Mean
1: the things. That's that what happen. I'm doing. I'm using yes. Sean's tools to yes. go back and listen to my own shit.
0: Yes. This is exactly what I want to talk about. Yeah. So, flush that out a little bit more. Tell me about. I mean, is is that something? Would you would you call it subconscious or because because you want to get ca- you don't want to get caught in your in your in your limbic, maybe you're in your limbic system, you don't want to get caught, but there's something more subtle, more more important, more spiritual that says, no, you need to get caught, right? So tell yes. me about like how you work and do this because this is exactly-
1: uh, in, in, real- Here's what Sean said. It, as he went back and looked at his traumas, he realized when you really step back from a place of humility and learning, you can go back and you can then do an autopsy on it. Yes. And you realize, oh, hell yes, I set this up. I'm the one who stole. So it was obvious, like it was this was an obvious one where I had no loss in saying you created this. It was very easy to do that with this one. I created this like um, like I remember going uh, flash forward. I remember the first time I had sex. I was 18 years old and I uh, thought I had gotten her pregnant. Oh, my god! For two weeks, I believed she was pregnant. She was late. And that was one of the scariest moments in my life where I was just absolutely devastated, but I got away with it because I, she didn't get pregnant. Like that was the, that was the theme of my life growing up is I got away with most of the shit that I did. And it a lot of that was privilege. A lot of that was I was in a place to get away with it. Uh, we had it wasn't like I had parents that were trying to help me get away with it. I was just smart enough. I was, I'm. I consider myself a very uh, intelligent person, so I was always good at figuring stuff out, and I was always good at finding the exit door. Like, what's the escape route here if there is ever needed to? Um, and so really that whole culmination, that whole event culminates in when I went to Biola. Mm-hmm. And this is something we talked about in previous uh, scenarios. I decided with my friends to take acid. And with, um, and it was just one of those nights where we were just going for it. We had, I had done it before. It wasn't the first time I had done most drugs by the time I was a Biola. And this was my second time back. So the second time back, I was just balls to the wall. I was going to do whatever I wanted. I had reached a point. I remember reaching a point at USC, which is in between my two stints at Biola, where I said to myself, I'm just going to stop trying to please everybody else. And I'm just going to start li- life. Like, I I want to start, stop trying to be afraid of everything. And it was How the first you, moment. That Tim? I, was, How I, was, you? Uh, I was 21. One? Yeah. Sounds yeah, I was right. twenty-one. It was it that's was still, in between my two stints.
0: That's still so pretty been, amazing because th- that's something that doesn't happen. You still, when you go through those formative years, you're still trying to please the man, keep up with the Joneses, and you're trying to st- put on that 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 brave face and that um air of you know success. And you're like, no, you know what? I've been there, done that,
1: and I'm I'm ready. to here's what it, it was. I, yeah, I, that's exactly what I've been. But I had probably spent from the time I was nine. I was like, man, I'm fucked up. Like something's hurting inside. Something's wrong with me inside. Like that's, and I always had this drive because I had a mom who loved me and she always, she became a counselor and she always counseled us to figure out what's in your refrigerator. That was her big analogy she always used. Figure out what's in your refrigerator. Like, does it smell? Get it out of there, you know, kind of thing. She always had these simple analogies that she would use. And so I spent the vast majority of my life trying to figure myself out. Like, what the fuck is wrong with me? Like, why the hell am I almost getting caught all the time? Mm -hmm. And so when I went to USC and I finally had that moment where I'm like, okay, fuck it. I let go of trying to pretend that I was a good kid. I knew I was doing shit, but I didn't understand why I was doing it. And then when I went to Biola the second time, I went back balls to the wall. Like we were the party house. There was a keg at our house and a non-drinking school. Like you get kicked out for drinking and we had keg parties. So, and we did all the drugs at our house. Like typically everybody smoked pot and it was like, we were the party house. And it was a blast. I I was having more fun than I knew what to do with. (laughs) And then my friends go, uh, Let's go do acid. And I said, "Hell, yeah, I'd done it before, and it was an amazing experience. And that's when I saw the altered states moment, it, for anyone who doesn't remember or didn't hear before. So at that moment, we we decided that night uh, to take acid, and I began having, um, just kind of an off vibe. It wasn't a dark vibe. It was just like something was not right. And it started because I went to a Bible class that night. And it came on and I couldn't write my name. And I basically had a mini panic attack in the middle of a Bible class. Because I thought everybody could tell that I was on acid. So when we left that night, the rest of the night had this low grade, something's wrong kind of vibe. You know, you don't know what it is. It's just like this dissonance. And then we go, let's go get a movie. And we rented Altered States. And Altered <laughs> States <laughs> is a movie about doing acid and in in it's ex- experiencing schizophrenia that's essentially what it was okay and it's william hurt and it was just this it is actually an interesting movie but in the middle of it is this moment where he's having sex with his girlfriend and they show a picture of a pentagram with a goat's head and it's metaphorical but i went into an instant spin and at that moment my brain said you have just committed an unforgivable sin. And that was the thought that captivated me for the next 20 years. Yeah. I literally lived in a survival prison for the next, no, I'm sorry. Uh, I,
0: you were in a psych- psychotic
1: state for a little while, right? I, for three months, I was in yes. a psychotic state. I basically <laughs> couldn't live anywhere outside of the basic vicinity of my parents. So I was completely catatonic. I was in a deep state of both depression and anxiety at the same time, 24 hours a day, my body was inflamed. It was um, like, I started uh, losing weight dramatically because I couldn't hold food in. It would burn it up. Like I would have two, three weeks where I would have no stool and it was just it was completely debilitating. Every night I would have the same dream that I was driving down uh, the um, a windy street in San Francisco. And it was driven by a clown in a limo going 50 miles an hour down this windy street while he's driving with his head facing backwards towards Good me. That was my vision every night. I thought I am going to hell. And so I had constructed this world for three months that I was living in this reality that I was actually, if I died, any of those moments, I was going to go to hell. And what I realize now and what we have talked about is I have reached a point or I had reached a point in my life where I had constructed a scenario that only I could get myself out of. And I believe that was the beginning of my hero's journey. Mm. God was always a participant in that entire hero's journey, but God needed my participation too. And that was the first moment that I got so fucked up that I had to participate in order to survive. Like I would wake up and I would be in a catatonic state for most of the day like completely catatonic where the only thing you could focus on is the very worst thoughts in your head spinning over and over and over into infinity and that was my brain for 3 solid months and i um like i could only really be at two places i could be at church and i got to a point where i could drive myself to church so i could go to church and i was super hyper like i would be an ultra hyper john piper like mm-hmm. take john piper and multiply him he's for anybody who doesn't know he's in a very Conservative fundamentalist pastor that is has an amazing heart, and I, I I knew there was love, but I was just judging the shit out of myself, and I was in this deep dark hell. And um, every day, the only thing that I could hear. Oh, let me share one precursor to this. Right before I took acid, I had had a thirty day religious experience where I went home on Palm Sunday and I said. Mom, Dad, I use drugs. Mm. Okay, and I went home and I shared absolutely everything I had ever done in my life with them. It was like a purging. Yeah, it was like a complete purging of this negative energy. And I clean remember, refrigerator. Oh, dude, yeah, yeah, exactly. And it was, but I just reached a point in my life where I said, "I got to get this shit out of me." And for some, and I, w- I didn't know what I was doing. In hindsight, I do now. Uh, But I just like, I had to get this. I had to speak truth to my parents. I had to own it. And um, so, right. I own it. I went forward on Palm Sunday and I recommitted my life to Christ. And I remember having this deeply spiritual religious experience. It was more spiritual. It was so energetic because. And it's what I now understand is when you remove the noise from your body. By purging, by doing work you suddenly can see clearer because the noise is removed from the signal. Yeah. And so for 30 days, I was literally the fucking smartest human on the planet. It was the weirdest. I'm not joking. My my professors were like, something is wrong with you. You are knowing things that you shouldn't know.
0: It was because it was, it was extant. It was coming from, like, you were tapped in.
1: I was completely source. tapped in. Yep. For 30 days. And then I had the night on acid. So the, fir- the 30 days prior to that, I was literally living in the presence of God. That's what yeah. it felt like. Yeah. I, there was nothing, nada, separating me from God. I was feeling God to the extent because God was inside of me and fuck you if you thought differently. I was like, hello. And guess what? I now, I now know how to love you. That was the number one thing that came to my mind. I now know how to love you because I can love myself. And then all of that was taken away completely. That all went away. And the only thing I could hear in the first 90 days was be still and know that I am God. That was it. I could audibly hear that at times.
0: There's worse things to to hear than that.
1: Right. And so I, um, and then Most of the next 25 years is me clawing my way out of hell and every day saying, I'm alive today. I haven't died yet. Yeah. And uh, so, about 10 years into that process, I go to this conference at Mount Hermon. You've been to Mount Hermon, haven't you? I've not. Oh my god, one of God's glorious creations. It's there is a spiritual activity going on up there. It's it's pretty freaking amazing. But I go to this writer's conference, and it's a Christian writer's conference because I was trying to uh write my first novel, hmm. and um I was a writer, I was a script writer. That's why I went to film school when I was a biola. So I was writing and I was finally coming to terms of I wanted to keep being creative. And I met this guy, i go to his class, and his name was Gordon Dobby, and Gordon was this uh, kind of part hippie, part mountain man, old sage. And he tells me this story that to this day is the most impactful story I think I've ever had in a moment. And the story was, uh, Gordon is a counselor and he was counseling a man and the man was recounting his bad dream. And the bad dream was he was running in the forest from a sound and the sound was behind him And Gordon was telling him, okay, Gordon's process is use your imagination to relive the moment so that you can bring new attention or intention to it. And so he said, I want you to turn around and face him. And he goes, no, he's going to get me. He's going to get me. He's going to get me. And uh, so the guy keeps running. He goes, you need to turn around and face it. And he goes, no, I can hear it. It's right behind me turns around. Finally, he agrees to turn around and he says, Gordon says, ask him his name. And he goes, what is your name? And he goes, I am your courage. Why are you running from me? (laughs) And that moment stopped me in my tracks. That is the moment that was almost my conversion moment of, okay, God, I'm going to give up. I'm going to believe, and I'm going to start seeking out my own restoration. I need to heal my heart. I can't just keep fighting my way. You know, I was, I, I consider the last probably from about 23 to about 50, my survival period. Mm-hmm. I was in an intense learning period and survived just literally to first survive. And then say, can I, and the, I was telling my wife this the other day, that 30 day catalyst moment was almost like the only food I had. Like it was but I want to, I want to experience that again. I want to feel that again. Tapped into the source. Absolutely. Right. And because in this space, I was whole, I felt love beyond anything that I could possibly imagine. And because it was something I could feel, it validated everything I knew to be true in my brain. Okay. And it was thirty days of the most intense bliss, and you know, I, I it was just one of those moments where I would say I was living above five hundred for an, an extended period of sustained time. It was flow to and to the nth degree. That's yeah. what it was. Could I get yeah. back to that? Yeah. And so I meet Gordon, and I I basically stalk him for basically six months and say, I want you to be my mentor. I learned this trick in business. Just ask, and they may say yes. And he said, you know what? I don't think I can. And I said, okay. And then I um, had been, at that time, uh, oh, right at that time, the catalyst for real heavy change was at 23, my dad died. Yeah. Okay. So my hero died. Your biological dad, yeah. So my biological dad died, and I inherited... think $270,000 and his condo. Okay. And I lived in his condo for the first six months. So it was very like, wow, I'm, I'm reliving my dad. And that really gave me the catalyst for I need to, what I now know is I want to redeem my family story. Mm. Everybody has to redeem their own family story. That's the one they have to go after. They don't, I don't need to redeem yours. You lived that I need to redeem my own. And if we all collectively redeem our stories, we're going to be a much different community.
0: Kind of like Joseph. Joseph had to redeem his family story, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. He did, yeah. yeah.
1: I, I never thought about that, too. That is a really, here's the thing. The more that I dove into God, the more that I realized those stories were really, really, really there. there there's something going on underneath the surface that all of Israel's stories are all about us. They are,
0: Amen. they're all about us.
1: Um, so I meet. So finally, I had been using my money and investing it, and I made a crap ton of money investing. And I'm standing out at, in my, um, and I remember where I was. I had made, oh, no, no, I know what it was. I uh, had sold my house, and uh, the real estate market in Silicon Valley just absolutely took off. So I made, I think I made $600,000. So I had all this money. Burning a hole in my pocket, like literally, I had six hundred thousand dollars in my bank account. It was weird. It was the most wildest experience I've ever had with money, and I said, "I'm I'm trying to stay in flow." I had learned to get into flow of kind of tapping into listening to God, going, "Well, let's try this." Well, what about this? Okay, let's try that. I was just listening, and then I hear this thought: "I want you to give Gordon fifty thousand dollars."
0: that's not not quite
1: audible but it's 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 no really dude i heard it audibly i i oh, was in the room geez. i heard it audibly i i remember i was with my my business partner kevin we had stayed in their house for two weeks i was upstairs in the bedroom we were sleeping in because we were staying because we were moving to Folsom, and i heard it freaking audibly it was like it was like it was like it was ringing in my ears it was one of the most moments where i couldn't deny a single thing i was experiencing. And I said, "Holy shit! I've never done anything like that. Like that's but it's
0: kind dr- of dropping the bucket for you at that stage if you've got over no, 60. No, but
1: dude, it was like I had never had that. I mean, it was like it was a whole new level of of I had never done anything like give away fifty thousand.
0: Of course, no, nobody has. But, yeah, not not in our level.
1: <laughs> and so I um, I reached a point where I said, "Okay, let's do this," and I said, "Okay, let's go after it." I called him. And I said, Gordon, I want you to be my mentor. And I want you to, um, I'm going to pay you $50,000. And he was like speechless because he was, he was a pastor and a counselor. He wasn't making a lot of money. And his wife was a nurse and they, they lived nicely, but they weren't in any way rich. And he goes, you don't know how much this is going to help me in my ministry. And I said, okay, maybe. And that taught me a respect for money. Like it taught me that money has impact when you, money is your energy. Hey, money. And when you use money for good, it energizes things. And that's what I learned from that. It was like, okay, money has power, but I never really went after money. I said, I want wealth. And I didn't define what wealth was. Um, And then I, I got married. I had three of the most amazing kids. And I know My healing journey really dominated the first 20 years. I think the second 20 years of my life was really about being a family because I wanted to have a family that never got divorced. I wanted to be that family that would never do what my parents would do. I wanted to be that guy. Guess what? I got divorced. And I I married a wonderful woman. She was a great partner. We were very good friends. We had three amazing kids, and we were very intentional parents together. Uh, But I was still fucked up. I really was. I I I look at that period, and I said I I channeled most of my energy into being a really good parent, and I to this day I have an amazing relationship with my kids. Um, But I kept going back to the scene of the crime in my life, and so I reached a point where I was dissolving my marriage with my first wife. And that was a brutal moment because I had failed as a parent. I reconstructed the same thing that was traumatizing me. And I, um, it was absolutely um, brutal going through that. Um, but what happened is, About seven years prior to that, my mom finally died. In 2006, my mom died. And I remember standing in the shower and uh, we had just come back from being with family for like half a week. And, you know, like, wow, my mom's gone. Like my mom, like I cried for a year after my mom died. It was brutal. But I remember standing in the shower and for some reason, I didn't turn on the lights, and it was like dusk, so it was kind of darkish in the bathroom. And it was not ominous; it was just like
0: for I was in a very meditative. It was heavy,
1: man. Yeah, that so was heavy. That's a great word. Heavy is the perfect word. And all of a sudden, I'm standing in the shower, and I had my hand on the nozzle, holding it, and I got my forehead, and the water is pumping down the back of my back, and I hear who do you have left to be angry at? And I was like, wow. And it instantly became clear. I had held this deep grudge against my parents and I had never let it go and they were gone. And um, that was when I really began to really wrestle with, uh, letting go. And I remember saying, okay, I'm going to let go. And I felt it fall off my body. I did. I felt it fall off my body. Um, And that began, that really started a catalyst to, okay, I now have the awareness. Once that fell off my body, I had this deep awareness. I need to start practicing love. Mm -hmm. I need to stay, instead of trying to Do the church thing. Let's do the Jesus thing. Let's just do love. Let's cut away everything else and just do that one thing and see what happens. Like, I didn't care if I went to church, even though we did for a long time. Um, I stopped being as involved in men's ministry. I had uh, been, up until that point, I had developed this huge healing ministry in our church. And I kind of just said, let's. So, I started taking my kids to serve homeless people and just doing love. And that
0: was the action. Yeah. Instead of yes. the theological head, let's do the loving heart, right? right?
1: And that was really what changed my life. I can say to this day, that was the most important decision I ever made, but I had to let go of the garbage in order to see the catalyst to love. All the noise got wiped away once I let go of all my bullshit. And that really um, changed my trajectory because now it became, how do we start loving myself? How do we start Loving me, not just thinking about it, but feeling that love, and uh, putting myself in situations where we can love and uh, so when I got divorced, my life got shattered again. Um, it was funny I it's funny how bad things happen to you, and I don't know what I was destroying, but I think I was letting go of that entire story because in one weekend, um true story, I went. To work for a nonprofit organization and the president of it thought I was trying to steal his job. Okay. He'd been there for 40 years and I'd been there a year and a half. I'm not going to steal anybody's job, but he thought I was, he was paranoid. He thought the board was going to push him out. So he fires me on Thursday. Okay. This is in April of 2012. He fires me on a Thursday and they summarily cart me out. Like, they hand me the check. They give me a box. A security guard comes and with a gun and escorts me out. Okay. And uh, this is a Christian nonprofit.
0: I understand. I know exactly what you're talking about. You were there.
1: You know this whole story, dude.
0: I didn't you're get the job, more. which I'm thankful for. <laughs> yes.
1: yes. I'm glad I don't have that job anymore, too. I really am. It was like God using bad and making it really, really good. Right. That's Thursday. Friday, I get a letter and a call from my lease management company because I was renting a house. I couldn't afford to live in San Jose anymore. We were living on Folsom money. So moving back, we had moved back to work for this job. Um, They called and said, uh, you have 60 days. The landlord is selling the house. And that's the only way they can get you out of lease. And they don't want to renew your lease. So you have 60 days. So I lose my house. If I lose my house, I don't have a job. I can't pay for my rent. If I don't have a house, where do I go? I don't have my kids. So in one weekend I lose my job, my house and my kids. Cause I don't have a place to custodial them to, to give them a bed. Literally everything gets completely stripped out of me. And I like, okay, I guess we're rebuilding. Yeah. And, um, and that's when I really realize I, the last seven years has been sort of a survival mode, and this last year, I have had one of the greatest renaissance years of my life, and for the first time, I can feel, I, and I think what happened is, is I that moment, that weekend traumatized me to such a degree that I went in to take care of everybody else mode, and I'm a codependent. I am. I am now. I recognize I'm a codependent. And I am now not a codependent because I want to speak into my body that I'm not. But I have suffered from those wounds of being a codependent for the last seven years. And I am reconstructing my life. But this last year, I had to completely deconstruct it. And I had realized I had had all of these spinning plates taking care of all the things because I didn't want anybody to feel the pain of the divorce. Yeah, And I realized I had to let them all Come down. I didn't need to keep spinning plates anymore. And once I got rid of all the noise, guess what? That same thing that I experienced 30 years ago came rushing back in.
0: That tapping that's, in the source. I,
1: that's how I got here today. Yeah. Is today I'm at a place where I feel like the noise is out of the way and I am discovering. This capacity to love that I want everybody to experience. And it's not just in my mind. I spent 30 years, probably 40 years of my Christian education focusing on theology and trying to get to theopraxis, which is in the heart, and realize it doesn't, theology doesn't work if you can't feel it. Mm. But if you feel it, you will die for it. Mm-hmm. Remember how we talked about that? Yeah. You will die for it. And I am now, I don't want to seek out my death, but if I love is worth dying for it mm-hmm. is because you realize we are all connected in an energetic energetic level. There is no separation between us. We are all valuable and good and one, but we suffer from a problem of judging people the wrong way. It's yeah. just one problem. We bite into the apple of the tree of knowledge, of good and evil, and we play this game. And once we play the game, we cannot know who we are. It's a voluntary disassociation from who you are as a human being. And it's, I call it the unknowing. We don't know who we are anymore. So how do we, and then the ego kicks in and says, I'll take over and I'll construct you an identity for you because we don't know who we are we live out this entire life. And I created this Jonathan And I'm realizing it's okay to let Jonathan go because I don't need those memories to realize I am part of God. I am connected at source. I am already there. I'm under grace. uh, And I can't lose that because it's energy. I can't, the only way I can do is become complete material. And even the second law of thermodynamics won't let that happen. So that's how I got here.
0: That's an amazing journey, man. And um, you know, one of the things that I've wrestled with is how you're able to do and have this kind of perspective. And I think, you know, the story you've told me, um, even the fact that I was actually going to ask you, how would you compare maybe the three big pain points or maybe the four? The first one is, of course, the um, get it landing on a pencil. But when you stole, when you had the psychotic experience and the divorce are all trials Mm-hmm. You know, in, in matters fact, uh, that a hero's journey would go through. And typically mm-hmm. you don't see the hero have complete bliss before they fall. Typically they see this, a sense of what bliss could look like. Then they're given a big challenge. And then they come out of it right on the other side. Let's say Luke tapping into the source for a little bit, mm-hmm. but that's not enough. And he goes down in a Dagobah and he sees him, his own self and he knows the thing he's got to overcome. How would you compare each of those things? And I guess what I'm a- aiming at is how would you tell our listeners to, if they're going, I mean, a lot of us are going through a lot of pain and and struggle right now with, with COVID, with job losses, with, with financial issues, with a lot of uncertainty out there. Um, How would you encourage our listeners to lean into those kinds of difficult situations and then try to come out of that? It's a big thing to do. You've spent your whole life kind of wrestling through this, but let's say somebody's going through this. How would you encourage them to embrace what they're going through and let them know it's going to be okay on the other side?
1: I'm going to answer that question really simply. I am now learning. The only thing I have to do in my life is love myself. And and to do that, you have to break life down into increments of time. When I first started, I didn't know how to love myself. So there's two fundamental things is I'm working against myself because the things that keep you from seeing truth are the noise in your body. Your body has noise in it, and those are just stored traumas. They create dissonance in your electrical system, which is an impedance. And if you remove those, everything becomes clear automatically. Like a circuit. You don't have to to discover truth. Truth is awareness. You just get it. And when you do, when you remove that noise, it opens up the frequency, and you can experience better experiences. Automatically. And one of those is your relationship with yourself. We have all constructed a version of ourselves. Like I was saying to you the other day, our entire religious experience is our assessment of how God sees us at some point. Like, what does God really think about our dignity? And if you come to the conclusion that you're evil, you got the question wrong. Okay. And everything is about bringing love to the moment and saying, okay, what would, how would love judge this moment? Mm-hmm. How would love, and it's not individual law for every specific circumstances because we are all our own AI. We all have a completely different blueprint, completely different. You've got to start removing that noise in order to see what's already there. And that truth is you've always been loved. And the more you remove the noise, the more you will automatically see you are loved. And what I recognize now is the more that I practice, I'm actually retraining my Jonathan, my AI, my amygdala to believe it. Yeah. And that's what I think Jesus was saying about you will experience abundant life. It's not in more money. It's in more love. It's in a more awareness of love. Because when you experience love, guess what is the byproduct of that? It's called joy. You start fucking loving life. Like, you really like, I love my life because I spend most of my time enjoying the moment I'm in rather than trying to figure out where I'm going. Yeah. And I do have grand ambitions, but I focus very little on those. And I focus on experiencing love in the moment because it always produces joy. And I just get to enjoy everything around in that experience yeah and that is abundant life would you say i claim for myself that that is abundant life and i want more of that and it's not religion it's not some ethereal concept it's completely congruent with quantum physics that was important for me we are all energetic systems experiencing each other there is a watcher and there is an amygdala. There is an AI in our brain. And I think that that's why I've always been attracted to our conversations, is these are about growth and learning, about being a better human being. And I am now learning that you can retrain that AI to work for you. It can learn how to love because it was designed by a God who loves. So yeah. there's love there. Its capacity is to turn on to love. And once you do, you are Jesus. I
0: love where you're going with that because in in many ways, having the noise is important because it allows our mind to differentiate what tapping into the source looks like versus what not is. You need to have a foundation, but like a true um, AI, like when you think about machine learning, it needs information from the outside so that when it goes through that next iteration of itself, it's a more perfected state, right? So you've been yes. down there. Okay, here's here's distraction. All right, I've been there. Let's move down this path mm-hmm. and be more open to uh,
1: tapping into that source. And eventually, and here's the thing. Yeah. your automatic brain is valuable. Your default mode network is not bad. It's just scripted wrong. Yes. So you if, you remove, you, if you remove if you remove the negative bad. scripts, the script and here's different. what the tree of knowledge is trying to teach us, you only have one script to remove. That's it. That you're evil. If you're not evil, guess what? You are good. Okay. You're in the right category. And guess what? We're all in the right category. Oh, we are. Guess what? There's grace. Grace was the Jesus didn't come to establish grace. Jesus came to make us aware of the grace that is part of the fabric of the universe. It's always there. Yeah. Okay. These are just temporal experiences. We are just on this earth for a short period of time. God can get over your trauma and your drama and all the things because you have the capacity to experience love. And that's why is that my the rest of my life I want to be about experiencing that love and helping other people experience that love. That's and I don't want it to look like what we've done before. I want it to be something new and imaginative and creative that only speaks to good. So that's where I want to go.
0: I love it, man. No, that's that's powerful stuff. Um, I I think. I mean, I, I clearly think that your mom had a huge formative part on, even though you were bummed out about the, the, the marriage not working, the, the idea of her using imagination to kind of see Jesus in the moment, the, the the kind of ideas that you focus on your heart. I think those are little bits of things that you, you, you fell back on and you probably had little hints of that. So, I mean,
1: I, I know I, my mean mom got joy. Things my mom okay. got the end game. She got that. It was about joy. She used to always say that yeah. she goes, it's all about joy because she allowed herself to be loved. Yeah. And because she let herself be loved, she did her own work. My mom grew up under a, uh, uh, my mom actually stopped my grandmother from killing herself. Wow. That's how like she, she lived above a bar or, you know, like her life was extremely poor. She came out of suffering And was able to help others through suffering. And I realized that's what I did. I found a way through suffering. And she was a massive catalyst in that.
0: Yeah. So
1: I I was very blessed. That's the thing, is I come from privilege. I do. I am a very privileged human being. And the but here's this is what this is how I want to end, because this is one of the dominating thoughts I'm having this week is privilege was one of my greatest assets but i think everybody has it because what privilege does at a very core level is it reminds you that you are valuable that's what being privileged like my white privilege did is it told me at a fundamental level that i was valuable mm. and i don't think that is limited to white i think it is a human experience that everyone has capable is capable of experiencing that we have that sense of because when you turn on the default mode network with you are good you are loved you don't have to spend all of your time building defense mechanisms you can start being creative you can start living your life without fear that there's something going to hit you when you remove the noise life begins to get really good so yeah. All right, everybody. That's the, uh, end of the podcast. That was me downloading my brain. Hope you enjoyed it. Um, this was, this was a good experience for me. I'll just give you a quick summary. I enjoy this process because I've never told it in that story level. Um, and it was good for me to hear it. So hopefully you guys got uh, value out of it. Rich, hope you got did.
0: No, it was awesome, man. Really enjoyed it. Absolutely. So, um,
1: we love you guys. We uh, Please comment and subscribe. We love to engage with our listeners. And this is really a fun experiment of ours. Um, I love my brother, Rich. He's been one of my best partners in life. And we just want to keep giving you great content. Like as Rich said last week, if you have an idea, please let us know. We'd love to engage with you on it. So any last words, Rich?
0: No, really appreciate the insight, man. And I just need to learn how to I, I need to tap into your heart. I need to tap into my heart. I need to, yes. um, yeah. And, and I'm learning. It. It's a little bit at a time. And, and I think as much as I get in my own way, that's what's actually helping me find that. And day to day, I'm actually getting better and better. It's, it's. I'm seeing it and feeling it in, yes. in real, real ways. And um, it's, it's actually. Um, I think it's easier than we think. It, it's just you've got to be
1: yes. in that right zone. Yeah. You have to be intentional. You have to connect Absolutely. the head and the heart. And when you do, that creates the connection of energy. And it's unstoppable. It is. It's unstoppable. Because we're not doing it. I'm not doing it. So I know we have to talk another hour on it. Love you guys. (laughs) Much love, people. We will uh, see you next podcast. Take care. Peace. Peace.